Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. O gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have given us your word that we might be able to know all of the glorious truths of the gospel, that even difficult passages like this point forward to Christ And we pray that we would see Christ clearly, that we would be able to see the hope of the gospel, that we would be able to see the joy of salvation. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with the Spirit, that we might be able to see and understand and comprehend the grace and the mercy found in the gospel. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 to 26. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do to Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and say to you, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that he, she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. I have often wondered who chooses the Bibles that appear in our children's storybook Bibles or our Sunday school lessons. Is there some meeting where they sit down and vote on which stories should or should not be include, included? Do they think of the mountain major mountaintops of redemptive historical timelines? Who chooses where to stop, where the story begins, what to include, what not to include? Do they think about the lesson which is to be taught in all of these things? Obviously, there's curated. You cannot fit the whole Bible in these short little stories. They're edited in some regards. Now, I have no, uh, not to my knowledge, seen a realistic children's book story where David stands victorious over the corpse of Goliath with the sword in his hand ready to decapitate him. Now, maybe that's why I'm not invited to these stories or meetings, if they have any. But I think every one of these stories points to the victory and points us to Christ. We don't know it, but they're maybe too gruesome, too bloody for us. The mama bears mauling the boys after calling Elisha, go up, you bald man. The man devouring the prophet in 1 Kings chapter 13. Herod's daughter dancing provocatively and John the Baptist's head on a platter. Haman and the gallows. Noah in his drunkenness. We could go on. And today we find one of these stories called the bridegroom of blood. 
Now, last time we stopped halfway through the message, the Lord was speaking to Moses on his way back. And we stopped there for two reasons. One, a practical reason, and both are practical reasons and not textually driven. This is one whole event that Moses, as he records this, going back from Midian to Egypt, meeting his brother in the wilderness. We, we spent that first half looking at God's sovereignty, because this is a matter that will come up repeatedly, repetitively as we go through this book. And spending on time on that helps us give a foundation to be able to understand the other portions as we come to them. But the secondly, but secondly, we begin the second portion of the Lord's speech to Moses in Midian because it breaks up the passage that helps us understand this passage today. When we look at the complexity of a passage, often we come to the complexity and we try and isolate that passage to be able to understand the fullness of it. But when you isolate it, it actually makes it more difficult to be able to understand or interpret. Now with that kind of disclaimer, let's look at this difficult passage together. The first thing that we need to understand is the sons of the Lord, the sons of the Lord. The Lord tells Moses that he is to tell Pharaoh, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son Go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, we've highlighted as we've gone through this study in Exodus the, the importance and the, the predominance of the title of son. In the opening pages that begin, these are the son, names of the sons of Israel. The midwives were only commanded to kill the sons of Israel. When they did not do this, Pharaoh then commanded all of his people to throw only the sons into the Nile. In the midst of all of this, there is born a son, Moses, who God raises up to be able to save his sons as their sons cry out to God the Father to be able to save them. Often this is translated people or children. The, the translators are trying to, to show the fullness that God is saving the nation. But underlying all of this, that the Pharaoh is specifically trying to attack the sons in Israel. It's the sons who called out for God's help at the end of chapter 2. Moses is actually sent to the sons of Israel to be able to save them from slavery. Now, before you start throwing up your arms in the air and start screaming at the Bible and saying, see, this just goes to show the Bible is a patriarchal book that elevates hierarchical powers of XY chromosomes. The Bible is a theological book. And thus, when we come to a passage like this, we need to understand why it is theologically important for this to happen. Because God then calls Israel his son, his firstborn son. Now, this is an important cultural statement that is lost in our ears today. The firstborn son is to hold all of the responsibilities and privilege that is tied to that household. They receive a predominant amount of the inheritance, not for themselves, but that they might then be able to care for the rest of the family. That responsibility, that weight is placed upon the firstborn son. 
And this, when God says that Israel is his firstborn son, God is saying that the blessings of God are given to his son Israel. But it goes further than this. The origin of Israel is not a biological significance, but theological. Israel does not descend because of a biological family, but Israel exists because they are begotten by God. This is the point in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 6, that God had created them. God had established them. God had called them out of the world. That we can then say, although we're not biologically descended, that we, as Paul says, that we are sons of Abraham. The other aspect that we can understand about this term of firstborn son is the people of God then bear God's name. They should reflect his character. They have their family ties. They have their family resemblance. Now this should be important when we see the people then rebel against God. But it's also very interesting to be able to think about this. That God then turns and calls Israel his son. That God uses the terminology of family to encapsulate his relationship with his people. He does not use a hard taskmaster relationship like Pharaoh. If Israel is being God's son, then God is Israel's father. They are slaves to Pharaoh, but they are sons to God. The, the people of Israel, when they're working for Pharaoh or building Pharaoh's house, They do not receive any inheritance from this. But a son is the son works. The son then builds up their inheritance, which is given to them from the father. They're serving God rather than serving as as slaves. This is important when God says that he called them out. Let them go that they might serve me in verse 23. They're not to serve him as slaves. They're to serve him as sons. This is actually the parable of the, the parable of the two sons. It's not a parable of one son who goes away, squanders all the money. It's a parable of two sons and their relationship to the father. This parable shows that, that they, they're sons, but they think that they're slaves. The prodigal son in in the pigsty goes back and says, well, I'll go back and be a slave, a servant to my father. The father doesn't come down and say, yes, you can be a slave. He calls him my son. But the other son who has been, he says, I've been a slave. I've been a servant in all your days. But the father turns around and says, you're not a servant. You're a son. Everything that I have is yours. They misunderstood the relationship that they had with their father. He was a father and they were their sons. And God sees Israel as his son. That we then see this loving, caring relationship of how God treats and deals with his people. He's a father who guides, a father who disciplines, a father who protects. Now this then makes sense when we are called sons of God, as Paul does in Galatians chapter 4. Now we also need to remember that Two things have happened prior to help us understand more about this passage. The first is that Moses is going to tell Pharaoh, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. 
Here, Pharaoh has enslaved God's son and and is treating him horrifically, them horrifically for centuries. He has sought to kill the sons of Israel by commanding the midwives to kill the young boy who just came into the world. And then when that didn't work, to then command all of his people to throw them into the Nile. That now God promises that if Pharaoh doesn't listen, if Pharaoh doesn't give them back, he is going to kill his firstborn son. Now, we know that this is talking about the Passover to come. The final sign of wonder before Pharaoh finally lets God's people go. But the second thing that we need to be reminded of is that great and glorious promise in the garden. And God promises that he, the son, will crush the head of the serpent. Now with that in mind, let's come to this difficult passage here of the bridegroom of blood. First, we need to be able to see the sons of the Lord. The second, we need to be able to see his death at the door. Some way between Midian and Egypt, there's a great story that Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, seeks that we need to know and has been recorded for us in God's Word. Now, what's interesting about this story, it's caused a lot of scholarly articles and discussions that this story clearly involves the Lord, two or three other people, Zipporah, Moses, Gershom, which is Moses' firstborn son. However, we only have two names recorded in this passage in verses 24 to 26. Zipporah and the Lord. All other references are in the third person, him. Now, some translate him one time as Moses. So to who does this refer? Is it Gershon or is it Moses? Who is God trying to put to death. Now, I think commonly the understanding is that it is Moses that they're trying, the angel is trying to put to death, mainly because of the term which is used, a bridegroom, translated in verse 26. Zipporah saves him, whoever him may be, by circumcising their son, Gershom. Now, in this ambiguous passage, it's ambiguous due to its brevity. How does Zipporah know what to do? What is the significance of location? I, however, think that the Lord is seeking to put Gershom to death and not Moses, mainly because of what we have discussed to up to this point. God had just been emphasizing Israel as his firstborn son, that if he does not listen then the firstborn son will be put to death. So, Pharaoh's firstborn son would be put to death because he was unable and unwilling to be able to do what the Lord had commanded. So we have in the same situation this angel of death come to the household of Moses to be able to put his firstborn son to death because Moses had not done what the Lord had commanded. Now, if it is Moses or Gershom, we need to understand that that does not really alter the, 
the main point of the story, the main emphasis is death is coming and blood needs to be shed for death to be averted. The main outcome is that you are a bridegroom of blood to me. See this at first glance of what you might say is the Passover. Here the angel of death comes, but blood is shed and the angel passes over. But Moses wants us to connect this to the Old Testament sacrament of circumcision. When God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, he promises Abraham a son who will come from Abraham and Sarah. And through this son will come this everlasting covenant. And the sign which was to be applied to the household of Abraham was that every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days among you shall be circumcised. But within this promise God made to Abraham, saying every male among you must be circumcised, he says that if any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of the foreskin shall be cut off from his people, he has broken my covenant. And the image here is Gershom, Moses' son, is cut off. Either the foreskin needs to be cut off, shedding blood to be able to welcome them in, or the foreskin, or they are cut off. They are cast out. They are not a part of God's family, visible family. Specifically, God's people are God's covenant people. Genesis 12, God calls Abram and told him that he would make him into a great nation. In Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abram. Abraham was caused to be able to go into a great sleep, and God himself walked through the two halves, this bloody covenant made, to be able to cut a covenant, this heifer, a goat, and a ram. And God establishes this covenant of grace with Abraham and his offspring. The sign was then given to Abram in Genesis chapter 17. Circumcision was this bloody rite of admission into the covenant community. But Abraham was not saved through circumcision. Paul explains this clearly in Romans chapter 4. The mystery that was somewhat concealed in the Old Testament is now revealed in the New Testament. Circumcision was never a sign of salvation, but a sign and a seal of the covenant promises for all those who believe. Physical circumcision was simply the external sign of being part of the team. However, physical circumcision and physical descendants of Abraham are not automatically saved. But if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Circumcision was thus then a seal of Abraham's righteousness. Circumcision is not merely an outward or physical but it's always speaking of the heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Everyone has always been saved through faith and grace alone. 
This is why we can find women of faith in Hebrews 11. They were not circumcised, but yet they were saved through faith. They had a circumcised heart. But as we see this now death at the door, but now blood on the floor, circumcision was a sign and a seal of the promises God gave to Abram. This bloody rite of admission into the covenant community, and this is exactly what this term bridegroom can actually mean. This term does not always mean a husband, but it can be translated to speak of a son-in-law, a father-in-law, mother-in-law. It's the term is used to speak of Jethro in chapter 3 and chapter 4, verse 18. Now that this person has been made part of the family, they are now a blood relative, although they do not share the same blood. They do not share the same DNA strand in their blood. But they're the same family because of this covenant. Some people have said, it is customary for a woman to call a son when he is circumcised a bridegroom. So Zipporah circumcises her son to be able to make him a part of the covenant community, to be able to save him from death. So too, those who eat the Passover must be circumcised as well. The Lord tells Moses and Aaron, this is a statue of the Passover, and no foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is brought for money, he may eat of it after you have circumcised him. And here Gershom, which name means foreigner from a sojourner land, sojourner in a foreign land, he is like a foreigner. He is an outsider. He needs to be circumcised to be able to be welcomed into this covenant community. See a similar story in the chapter Joshua chapter 5. We're a new generation of the sons of Israel who had not been circumcised in the wilderness, went under circumcision with a piece of flint. It was after they had celebrated the Passover. After this, they celebrated the Passover, and then the manna ceased. They enjoyed the food and the, from the promised land. Now, why do we say all of this? How do we understand this passage? We need to understand quite clearly the death is at the door, and the only way for death to be averted is blood to be spilled. Blood must be shed to be able to avert death. You see this clearly in the Passover, when the whole family gathers to be able to sacrifice a lamb. Death is coming to every single house. The question is, who is going to die? When the lamb dies and the blood is sprinkled upon the door, death averts that door because blood has been shed. Death has already come to that house. But to others, death passes by, and if there's no blood, then death comes to that house through the angel of the Lord. So too in this, that death comes to the door. Someone is going to die. In this case, it's not a lamb, it's the foreskin. That this understanding that circumcision is the sign and the seal of the covenant linked to God's promises that He was going to bring and raise up a son and through an everlasting covenant will be found. 
that a son is going to come. In the midst of this use of third personal pronouns and ambiguous terms, that in the start, the Lord's put to put someone to death, in the end, death leaves because blood has been spilled. The son, whose name is Sojourner, from a foreign land, saves this household from death. This son shed blood. The death would not come to this house. Now we can start to understand and see links how Christ, the son, a foreigner from another, from heaven, comes down to earth. And he sheds his blood. The death might pass over us. Us in the covenant Family, those who share in the inheritance of the firstborn son, who cares and watches over all of the family with all of the responsibilities. The blood needs to be shed before, so death will be averted. Death is only satisfied when blood has been spilled. We'll see this even more clearly in the Passover, but here's the glimmer, the hope that we see here. That those who are truly in a covenant relationship with God, not externally as those who have been baptized into His visible church, but those internally who have been baptized by the Spirit in their heart, cleansed by the Spirit. That God then treats them not as slaves, but as sons. Welking them them into his family. They are saved from death which is due to them. Because of the unfaithfulness of the one before. That those who are from Adam deserve death, judgment, wrath. But those who are under Christ, the one who has obeyed God perfectly, receive life and not death. We can then understand The great prayer which Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with the power of the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend all the saints, What is the breadth and length and the height and the depth? To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. The glorious truth that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we begin not with our taskmaster. We pray our Father. We pray to a God who loves us who treats us not as his servants, as their slaves, but as his sons, who has saved us from slavery, that we might be able to serve him as sons. We would receive the inheritance as sons. What a glorious truth it is that we rest on. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Let us pray. O gracious and most merciful Father, We give you thanks and praise that even in a difficult passage like this, we see the hope of the gospel. 
that death is coming to our door. But blood needs to be spilled for death to be averted. We thank you that Christ came as a sojourner into this land to be able to avert death for us, to be able to save your household, which you are lovingly have placed your name upon it. Lord, give us the understanding that we might be able to know the riches of your glory, that we would be strengthened with the power through your Spirit in our inner being, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. We pray all of this in Christ's blessed and holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.